what is going to happen next. Well, um, what we sort of see over the last couple of weeks since the outcome became known um, is a, a sort of very slow, careful massaging uh, of some of the right center parties to join up in a coalition with Wilders PVV, Freedom Party. Uh, and my, my expectation is that it actually will succeed. In March 2021, this podcast dared the unthinkable. We quoted Francis Fukuyama. In The Origins of Political Order, published in 2011, Fukuyama argued that the problem of creating modern political institutions is one of getting to Denmark. So we substituted Denmark for the Netherlands and called the episode Getting to Holland which we published in the week that followed the re-election of long-standing Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. The triumph of Rutte's liberal centrist VVD back then vindicated the vision of the Netherlands as the endpoint of Fukuyama's theory of political development. But Holland doesn't seem so exemplary for liberal internationalists anymore. Alongside a welfare state and the rule of law, a consensual politics of moderation was key among Fukuyama's criteria for achieving a Danish or Dutch here degree of liberal democratic perfection. The election victory of Geert Wilders and his Party for Freedom (PVV) at the November 23 general race shatters that illusion. Rutte's cabinet had fractured over disagreements on migration policy. The longtime prime minister chose not to run again. Awful parties of his incumbent coalition suffered loss. But in the meantime, Wilders' PVV scored 37 seats in the 150-seat House of Representatives, making him the largest party in the Dutch parliament. His path to leading a cabinet runs through a very knotty and protracted negotiation process, but... The result signals a deep shift underneath the layer of normality that had comforted Dutch political life. So, today we ask, what beliefs does Wilders hold? Aside from, you know, his pent-up welfare chauvinism and his very open mistrust of Islam, heading into next June's EU parliamentary election, does Wilders remain a disruptive Eurosceptic, raising the spectre of a Nexit or Netherlands exit? Or has he become amenable to more gradual EU reform? To unpack all of this, this week we are hosting back on the show our friend Caroline de Gruyter. She's a colonist and an author of reference on all things European. And along we also have geographer and University of Amsterdam professor Ewald Engelen. As always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcast. And send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show for Patreon so you can get the full episode available down below. Um, feel free to join that for a bit of an early Christmas present for the Uncommon Decency team. 
Just speaking of Christmas, this is our last episode of 2023. We will be back for a new season in 2024. Um, so see you soon and uh, going on with the episode. So let's get right into it. Before we delve too much into the details, I think Yield, could you help us set the scene a little bit? What happened in the Netherlands with the uh, legislative election? What are the next steps before we get a government? And could um, Gert Wilders be the next Dutch Prime Minister? Is that a possibility? Okay, so basically three questions. Yes. Um, uh, what, what happened? Uh, how far back do you want me to go? Because there, there is, of course, there's always, there is always a prehistory to this. Well, f- feel free to go for prehistory, actually. Seven scene. I'm very happy to go back in time. Uh, okay. Now, what, what, one of the things that, that I've stressed in a couple of contributions is actually a quite radical neoliberal makeover of the Dutch public services, which actually started in the, uh, in the 1980s, was deepened in the 1990s. Um, and started to get um, sort of severe repercussions for the accessibility and the quality of the public services for Dutch citizens uh, during the age of austerity, which started in 2010 and took up until 2017. Um, And then you would have expected some kind of an electoral backlash uh, on the back of that. But uh, COVID happened, uh, which basically froze for for a period of two years, froze the political situation. Uh, And when it became unfrozen again after 2022, um, we immediately saw a a couple of electoral backlashes. Uh, First of all, in 2023, 15th of March, uh, provincial elections, which uh, were taken away by a newcomer, uh, a farmer, Citizens Alliance, which um, became the largest party in all Dutch provinces. And then, of course, nine months later, um, when the elections, the parliamentary elections happened on the 22nd of November, when Geert Wilders became the largest. Um, And I have read both uh, electoral outcomes as a clear sort of indication uh, from an increasing slice of the Dutch electorate that um, they are being confronted with uh, too much uncertainty uh, and want the state to take control, especially over public services, uh, the, 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 the livelihood issues that were also broached uh, in the electoral campaign. And then the key question, of course, sort of becomes, why did uh, voters, disaffected voters, chose um, right-wing um, populist parties mm-hmm. rather than the more left-wing uh, populist party who was also um, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the campaign? Um, so that's that's one of the questions. Um, and then your second question, what is going to happen next? Well, um, what we sort of see over the last couple of weeks since the outcome became known um, is a, a sort of very slow, careful massaging uh, of some of the right center parties to join up in a coalition with Wilders PVV, Freedom Party, uh, and my, my expectation is that it actually will succeed. I don't know how long it's going to take, um, but it will. My, my expectation is that we will have a 
center-right, um, uh, radical-right uh, coalition um, in, in due course. Um, whether Wilders, your third question, is going to be the prime minister, um, I don't expect that to be the case. Uh, I, my, my expectation is that the prime minister candidate will be uh, chosen from one of the other three parties. Um, and my, if I had to gamble, um, my gamble would be Mona Kaiser at the on the second spot of the Farmer Citizens Alliance, taking the Prime Minister uh, post um, when the coalition negotiations have ended. But that is, of course, speculation. It is in the future. Don't know what will, what will happen. Uh, and what will happen is, also, is, of course, also one way or the other, um, contingent uh, on, on all sorts of uh, um, foreign uh, events, which are very hard to predict. Full stop. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, I think the the last Rutte government took about 240 days to form, something along those lines. Yeah, so it's a little, bit, little bit more, 270, I, I, uh, 270. I, I calculated. But it, yeah, so, so, so that basically means that it, it may take uh, three quarters of a year. Yeah, and there's a very kind of uh, formal kind of flirting procedure between parties with a, uh, yeah. a scout, a rapporteur, and it's a... It's a very long and complex process. Um, Caroline, from, from your perspective, I think, what, what did you see from the kind of European angle that you thought was shaping the, the, the campaign? Because, you know, when we think of the Netherlands, we don't think of a, of a radical party. It's a country that's done quite well for itself. And yet it seems to be voting, you know, like uh, more troubled Central European countries or Southern European countries. Um, what, what did you make of it? Well... I don't. I don't really disagree with what 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 Ewald uh, just told us. But I would like to add something. I have lived in Austria. I have lived in Norway, where you have seen the far right in and out, uh, and and in Switzerland too, actually, for four years, where you where you see the the, the far right in and out of government. And in Switzerland, they have been the biggest party since uh, the mid nineteen nineties already. Huh? Um, what happened, I think, in the Netherlands, Wilders has been around for almost 20 years uh, with yep. his own party. For a long time, Rutte, uh, the prime minister, uh, has once jumped in, into bed with him, 2010 till 2012, and then he felt screwed by uh, Wilders. He erected a, a large wall between the, 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 the uh, well, let's say the centre-right, uh, which is his own uh, VVD party, Rutte's own party. So he erected a big wall between the centre-right and the far-right. And he mm. said, you know, there's a lot there, but we don't want to go there. Mm. So a vote for the PVV, for Geert Wilders, was a lost vote in a way, because they would not end up in government anyway. I think what has happened... Uh, in the Netherlands, and you see this in, in, in several other European countries, including the UK, uh, is that um, the centre-right has broken down that wall. And it's not just Rutte's party, but, but I think he, he is a, he's a, he was a, his party was a crucial uh, player there. What happened is that in the fall, they sort of indicated that, well, yes, perhaps they could uh, collaborate, uh, cooperate with builders. 
And that suddenly um, turned uh, the PVV into, an, uh, let's say, a normal party, a party you can vote for uh, because you like it, because you want to, them to be in the government, but also a party to vote for, uh, for instance, if you want to really make sure that there's no center-left government uh, taking, taking shape. And so by opening the door to uh, cooperating with uh, builders, actually there was a whole uh, new dynamic and a vote for the PVV uh, became, an, uh, you know, was, not, was no longer a lost vote. You've, we've seen that in Austria, where the ÖVP was, you know, leaning over backward uh, to accommodate and to copy themes, the far-right themes of the FPÖ. And, of course, that benefited the FPÖ, because the original is always better. Uh, a counterexample of this we've just seen in Spain with the, uh, with the last elections a few months ago, where the centre-right, and I'm not sure they will repeat the experience, but in, in any case, uh, they indicated uh, we are not going to cooperate with the far-right. And all the journalists, they flew into Madrid. Uh, there were, they were front-page stories even in the New York Times saying, oh, Vox is going to be to make a big splash it didn't happen because the the center right uh, uh, made it very clear they would not get into a government with the far right so a far right vote was a, in a way a lost uh, vote and, and and so the journalists were disappointed and vox actually uh, didn't do so well uh, at all and this in various uh, uh, circumstances more or less is theme um, you, you see repeated in, in, in a lot of European countries. And um, so the, the centre-right, in my view, is, is really uh, having the key. And finally, if you look at the, at the polls of you know, people holding anti-democratic views in the Netherlands, that has not changed. What has changed is the... Is the uh, is the tactical uh, maneuvering of politicians. So it's not the electorate that has changed, it is the politicians that have changed. They opened the door to builders. Jold. Yeah, um, I, I, I partially agree with Caroline. Um, and it's of course, and my, my agreement is uh, particularly related to the observation that um, electoral victories for parties like Wilder's party uh, are in many instances, and similar parties elsewhere, are in many instances the outcome of multiple causes. So the um, so-called tactical error made by um, uh, the, fifth, the, the, the Liberal Party, the former Rutte-led Liberal Party, um, is part of the explanation but what i what i find striking about if you put it all on that tactical error um, yeah. you one way or the other uh, lessen the responsibility of um, center uh, political party leaders for the um, decreasing effectiveness and increasing costs of especially public services so what is what is sort of striking if you look through your eyelashes at the last two to three decades 
not only in the Netherlands, but also in other European countries, then it's sort of become visible that the uh, sort of political science law that approximately 20% of the electorate is susceptible to being seduced by radical right-wing populist parties um, no longer holds. The number of citizens who um, have become disaffected and dissatisfied with the performance of center parties has increased, and that's clearly visible in the Netherlands. Uh, in fact, um, one of the co-authors, Matt Goodwin, of what I still feel to be one of the best books about the rise of populism uh, in Europe, uh, the book by that he wrote together with Roger Eadwell, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, um, showed in a recent blog that the number of voters disaffected and dissatisfied with the performance of center political parties has increased, not only in the Netherlands, but across the board. Um, So if you look at the Dutch elections, there are basically two stories to be told. One is the the story that you sort of indicated and implicated in your your, uh, opening question is the story about the rise of Wilders PVV. But the other story is about the losses of center political parties, Christian Democrats, Social Democrats, liberal parties, they have been losing out, not only in the Netherlands, but also in other European countries. And I read particularly that second part of the story, I read that as increasing dissatisfaction, disaffection from an increasing slice of the electorate uh, with the outcome, the long-term effect, so to say, of the neoliberalization of public services. Caroline, do you want to bounce back? Yeah, I would like to uh, to jump in here. Please do. I think the loss that's a, that's a good observation, of course. The loss uh, of the of the of centre right uh, party and centre left. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I think here uh, stopping the far right. I think the centre right is 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 more crucial than the centre left. But what you, there's a beautiful case study of the CSU. Um, explaining this, the CSU in Bavaria, right? The, the, yep. the center-right conservative CSU. Um, just after the uh, refugee crisis, or whatever you call it, in 2015, uh, the AfD was on the rise in Bavaria, finally. And the CSU got worried because they were bleeding votes. They were losing votes uh, to the to the AfD. So what did the CSU do? They started uh, being tougher uh, on, on migration, against migration. They were uh, jumping high on the anti-woke horse already back then, against climate measures, against... Uh, I mean, they were turning further to the right. But it was very interesting to see that the further they moved to the right, <laughs> the more the IFD grew and the more votes the CSU itself lost. So it didn't work. And then at a certain point, when the IFD had actually in the polls grown bigger than the CSU, the CSU veered back to, this pol- to the political center, talking about inclusion, <laughs> about diversity, uh, about you know uh, Germany's um, uh, obligation under the the, the 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 Geneva Convention, uh, uh, offering a home, a refuge to to refugees and so on, and then on page I think in the Zeit, 
so the German weekly, by sheer uh, accident, I saw an interview with the secretary general of the CSU. Um, it was really tucked away deep inside the newspaper. And the question was, of course, so why did you suddenly come back to the political center that you had abandoned uh, about a year ago? And the man said, because each time we veered more to the right, the, the AfD was jumping against again further to the right. They always outfox us. And he said, and I will never forget this, du kannst ein Stinktier nicht überstinken. They are, they are the original of it. So, the, you know, if we start chasing the far right, uh, we keep chasing them because they're always ahead of us. And so they discovered, he said, that they were building even more votes by doing this. So they returned to the center. And guess what happened? The center right was gaining uh, votes again and the IFD was losing. This morning, I listened to the French radio. And there was an interview with, uh, with one of the far-right um, members of, 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 uh, of parliament. And she, the, 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 uh, and it was, of course, about, about immigration, um, which in, in every country is now becoming the major theme. And the center-right uh, in France as well is trying to run away with it by even passing Marine Le Pen's far-right party on the right. And they're laughing about this. They're saying, uh, you know, we're going to, 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 to crush Les Républicains, which is what the CSU was in Bavaria, what, what Rutte's PVD uh, is in, in, in the Netherlands. We're going to squash them because we, it's our theme and we are better um, mm. at articulating this. And I think this is, this is, this is why the centre-right is, is bleeding vote, because, because it, is, it is abandoning its traditional position and co-towing the far-right. This is why. Jord, we're very happy to hear your answer, but let's also link it slightly back to the, uh, um, the Netherlands. Could you probably give, could you give us a brief kind of overview of, we've talked a lot about what he kind of seems to represent in the political system, but could you also kind of flesh us in with what he wants, uh, both at a European level, but also, you know, his positions on immigration. Can you flesh out a bit more what he stands for? Um, yeah, 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 sure. Well, well, what I wanted to respond to Caroline's uh, earlier remark was that um, if you look at elections uh, in the in the European Union, um, most of them actually boil down to uh, contrasting uh, positions on what we what could be called um, social cultural slash identitarian issues. Um, and whenever uh, elections are about those issues, it is pretty obvious that the far right um, is going to win. Uh, the key point is, however, that um, there is another set of issues which are more material in nature and matter hugely to citizens and could provide uh, a completely different sort of alternative strategy to especially centre-left or, or more radical left parties. Um, and of course, one of the sort of key um, 
players in this, especially in uh, the, the, the southern neighbor of the Netherlands, which is Belgium, is the, 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 the PVDA, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the equivalent of the Socialist Party, but then in, in Belgium, uh, Flanders, as well as Bologna. Um, and they have been able to buck the trend of increasing decline for left-oriented parties. And they have been able to do that by um, consistently remaining silent on issues that have to do with uh, migration and the identitarian issues and stressing over and over and over again uh, class-related issues. Um, And I very much feel that one of the reasons why in the Netherlands the united left, so to say, failed to mop up uh, the disaffected voters, which they tried to do, which was ultimately what they were in the game for um, in the first place. They failed to do so because they, um, again, resorted to more cultural, social, cultural, identitarian issues and, and didn't succeed in coming up with a convincing story, which is socioeconomic and material in nature. That being said, the interesting thing uh, about Wilders is that if you look at his uh, election platform, he tries to combine the two things. So conservative, uh, nationalist, if you wish, on identitarian issues with, of course, trying to stop um, refugee migration in the first place and, and, and linking that up with what could be called a more socialist, social democratic, um, socioeconomic program. Um, that being said, so that's the ticket, the platform. What remains to be seen is the extent to which this ultimately um, filtered through uh, to the Dutch electorate, because my impression is, and I need only to look at my own um, mode of reasoning for filling in a particular box um, when you're in the election booth, is that most um, citizens do not read Uh, those programs. Um, So they um, let their decisions determined by what could be called vibes or images or whatever. And uh, the images are to a striking extent also informed by the actual voting behavior of uh, parties in parliament. Uh, The voting behavior is getting um, redistributed uh, through the socials. Uh, People look at that, they comment on that. And if you look at the voting behavior of Wilders PVV, it is sort of striking that most of their votes have actually been in favor of further neoliberalization of the Dutch political economy. Hmm. So and they tried to project an image of being social democratic, um, providing um, issues uh, uh, with regard to the livelihood that matter to voters, but actually, they have voted uh, completely in accordance with most of the uh, legislative initiatives by uh, Rutte's VVD. So it remains to be seen how um, social, uh, economic, socio-economic progressive they, they actually are. Uh, and that also um, creates some sort of uncertainty with regard to what ultimately is going to be the outcome of the lengthy negotiations that we're going to that we're going to um, um, have in in the Netherlands, my expectation is uh, freezing further green policies uh, because that is in accordance also with uh, especially the farmer citizens alliances of Caroline van der Plas, 
um, and 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 we will especially on the uh, rhetorically see um, an, an attempt to one way address the, the livelihood issues that voters have expressed not only by voting the way they did but also in in, in all sorts of surveys by the social cultural planning bureau in the Netherlands yeah uh, so I, I'm going to try to fuse a lot of the different strands of the conversation into one sort of uh, overarching question to sort of try and drill deeper into the ideology of, of builders, um, because it does seem um, in, in both what Ewald has just uh, walked us through and Caroline's recent work, that we tend to conflate a lot of the different strains of the new right in Europe. And yes, there are uh, many similarities, and Caroline, you've drawn uh, attention to some of these parallels in your recent foreign policy article. Um, there is obviously, and I'd like to ask you as well about the um, uh, Vilders' uh, uh, European strategy, what he's going to be trying to trying to achieve uh, past the, the June parliamentary elections next year. Uh, you, you do point out that they're uh, perhaps going to be helped out uh, to some extent by parties of the central right, which are now normalizing uh, the, the new right, not just domestically, but also at the EU level. Uh, but I think there are differences that tend to be overlooked between all of these parties that fall under the uh, national populist rubric, right? Um, what is very interesting to us, uh, I think, in, in other parts of Europe uh, about what has happened in the Netherlands is that whereas in, say, Central Europe and the Mediterranean, the new right tends to be very religiously infused, right? Very sort of banging on about Judeo-Christian civilization. You don't really see that uh, all that much in, in the Netherlands, right? You have a more secular a version of national populism, which, when faced with uh, the threat of radical Islam, is um, is opposing not Judeo-Christian civilization, but a more radical version of Enlightenment values, right? The, about the neutrality of the public sphere and 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 even uh, defending uh, sexual minorities against uh, radical Islamist ideology. So this is a, a key difference, and I'd love for you to try to uh, to pick apart the um, uh, some of the differences. Uh, uh, that that uh, that that demarcate uh, builders from from other uh, new right leaders. And to your point about economics, Ewald, I'd love to ask you. Um, uh, you know, you do you do mention that uh, that uh, builders rise is in part uh, a consequence of of, of uh, the neoliberal turn of the, the Dutch political economy. I think in this year echoed by uh, Hans Kunani, right, who has argued that when you uh, uh, when you um, uh, when you implement these these broad-based uh, neoliberal reforms, you tend to depoliticize the economy and the locus of political uh, cleavage shifts to, to social and cultural issues. And that's when you get the Absolutely. right of the new yep. right, right? So yep. uh, just a couple of questions to the both of you, starting to Caroline and then turning back to, to Ewald. Um, um, what, what is it about Wilders that makes him this sort of anti-Islam libertarian, as he's been characterized in some of the uh, English-speaking media? You even had uh, a journalist for the Critic magazine who uh, labeled him a platinum populist uh, after the color <laughs> of his hair and uh, sort of tracing a parallel with, with Marine Le Pen and even Trump, who are this sort of pagan, pagan version of of, of traditional conservatism. And the second question would be, what about the EU agenda? Is there a vision for reform? Is Builders a constructive reformer of the European Union? Or is he going to be erupting? Uh, well, he's, he's already in the parliament, but he, is he going to be erupting with even greater force in the European Parliament in June with a vision to totally disrupt the workings yeah. of the EU? Uh, Caroline, starting with you. Okay, so I think the, uh, the, the the traditional values and anti-immigration ticket is pretty constant in the in in, in far right parties across uh, Europe. 
and I'm saying Europe and not EU because we see it in Norway, we see it in Switzerland, we see it in the UK. Um, the, uh, I mean, populists are very good at, 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 at building fear huh? and then putting themselves, uh, presenting themselves as, as the saviors of sort of Euro European civilization under attack from uh, Muslim hordes, you know, scaring people and, uh, and, uh, and trying to capitalize on that. And Wilders, in my view, is, is no exception. And for that matter, it's the same with, with, with far-right snippets that, are, that don't belong to Wilders' party, but I mean, that are also present in, in Dutch politics and, and in other countries too. Um, what is striking, of course, in some countries, it has a very religious connotation, uh, like in, in, in Hungary, for instance, uh, in, in the more secularized um, uh, societies like Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands, um, uh, it, it, uh, it, it doesn't have that religious connotation so much, like we are the Christians, but it's still us as opposed to um, uh, belligerent uh, Islam, for instance. Mm -hmm. Second, your question about um, Wilders's uh, European strategy. I think we're we are seeing a very interesting uh, development right now, and all this has to do with uh, with Brexit, with Trump, with Putin. Um, is that while uh, many far right parties used to advocate exits, exits from the EU? Um, that has changed now because they all see that when you're when you're outside on your own, um, you will be eaten alive for breakfast. You know, mm -hmm. uh, look at the UK even, which is not a small country. Uh, it is getting closer again uh, to the European Union because on its own, um, nobody pays attention to it, and it's just uh, on the menu <laughs> being eaten. Um, so what you see is the FPÖ in, in Austria. You see, uh, um, well, uh, Georgia Meloni is a very good example too. Uh, Marine Le Pen is not advocating uh, exits from the Eurozone any longer, let alone, let alone the EU. And Wilders made a few very interesting, who is always against the EU because it's the, it's the easiest way uh, to cream off uh, dissatisfied voters in a way, just blame Brussels for everything. Um, Wilders, just uh, on election night even, after he had heard the, 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 the results that were so good for him, uh, he, he was asked several questions about uh, immigration. And then he said, he said, well, you know, we will have to solve this uh, together with other European countries. And the solution, uh, European laws are not forever. So, and we can change them from the inside. You know, the, uh, this suggests, uh, and there you can, you can look at Viktor Orban as well, the prime minister of Hungary, who is actually discovering, uh, far-right leaders are actually discovering what, what, what uh, centrist leaders have already discovered, that because they are members of this club, of the of, in Europe, uh, they actually 
they lose a bit of sovereignty because of that, but it, it also gives them sovereignty. Uh, look at Viktor Orban, how he is using his membership of the European Union uh, to pump himself up. He uses, he's much more powerful inside the European Union by throwing a tantrum every other week on major issues that the other 26 member states agree on. And he, you know, just opposes them. Um, I think, I believe, so he is actually, instead of rallying on the national podium against Europe, which Maloney did, with Orban, which Orban did, which all of them did, suddenly they are stepping on the European podium. And instead of wanting to leave the European Union, they want to, 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 to go into European politics and change Europe from the inside, which is a totally different strategy. And I think it is a dangerous strategy. Um, but at the same time, uh, I want to point out that n now that it, it makes European politics more interesting for voters. Everybody is complaining, has been complaining for years that uh, politics in Europe is so far away, we don't understand it, it is technocratic, uh, uh, there's this, this democratic gap and, and so on. With these guys jumping, you know, going into European politics, they take all the drama and the emotions and the insults and the fake news and, you know, uh, they take a lot of drama with them. What you see in the polls is that more and more Europeans are now indicating, they're noticing this, and they're indicating that uh, they, will, they are going to vote in the European elections in June. So on the one hand, uh, so it makes European politics a bit more uh, democratic in a way. So it, if, in, in my view, it is, a, it is a very mixed blessing, but it is a big event. Hi there, it's me. If you want to listen to the full episode, you can join us on Patreon. It should be down below in the description. Otherwise, we'll see you for the outro. Thank you so much for um, coming on the show. I think it was a, a really good perspective, both on the Dutch element of, it, of this uh, election and the results, but also on the kind of European comparisons. Uh, we had some kind of very... Um, long questions about what should be the strategies for centre-right parties about should we integrate should you stigmatize how what's the best solution but you guys actually blew it out of the park answering that question very early on with a really interesting and um, back and forth debate on what's going on across europe so thank you so much for both of you for coming on and uh, hoping to see you again in the future yeah thank you okay bye-bye bye <laughs> So um, as we frantically watch the coalition uh, negotiations in the Netherlands and the, and the widespread expectation that builders will play a significant role in forming a new government, if not leading it, we've hosted this fantastic episode with Caroline de Gruter and uh, Ewald, um, um, Ewald, um, Ewald Engelen. And uh, I 
I want to turn to you, first of all, Francois, because you've uh, you asked some really pointed questions at the beginning about the Dutch uh, dimension of this. Uh, and perhaps we should begin by addressing the domestic dimension and then we'll turn to the EU uh, to the EU scope. Uh, what, what, what were your thoughts on on the episode? Um, I'm just going to bounce back on the fact we were frantically um, following the results of the negotiations of the um, Dutch parties. Like frantically is a bit of an overstatement, given it might take another, um, you know, two or three or four or five months. Um, so, but uh, a very interesting election, nonetheless. I think what's the domestic angle, which is interesting, is I think the Netherlands is a country which is doing relatively well compared to a lot of its European comparisons. And so, you know, kind of, you were right with, with pointing there's been austerity going on. It's not all rosy, but we're talking about a country that has done very well for itself. So it's interesting to see, you know, the rise of far-right populism isn't only only the case in countries which have been hard-hit economically or countries which have a sense of decline, like France, for example. Um, On this, um, I think there's a a very interesting conversation going on, essentially, about how the centre-right needs to approach um, far-right parties or populist right or whatever you want to call them. And... Caroline was very much of the cordon, cordon sanitaire uh, option, and uh, you all had a uh, more mixed position. And I was thinking about it. I had this one example in the back of my head while we're having this conversation, which was in the 1980s when the French socialist um, president, François Mitterrand, became uh, president. He decided to integrate the communists into his government. Now, this created a lot of international tension. In my understanding, actually, Mitterrand ended up talking with the US ambassador, saying, don't worry, the communists won't be in charge. I'm the president. I'll be in charge. But he, think he went even a bit further than that. He said, essentially, that the communists were going to get plucked in government. His objective was to get them in and kick them out and keep the electorate. And that's what he's managed to do. I think, you know, there's also a lot on international uh, reasons for why the communists have declined. But steadily from the 1980s onward, you get a decline of the Communist Party, which was once the most powerful party in France. Um, and so there's this really interesting conversation about, you know, integrating the communists into the political system has actually weakened them. And there's you know, another example which from Austria from a few years ago when Sebastian Kurz was prime minister. He got the far right into government and they came out of it very weakened because essentially... Um, Kurtz gave him no space to brief. Now, I'm not sure how much academic research there is on you know, the different options, integrating cordial sanitaire, imitating. I'm sure there's been some study, but it's a very interesting conversation about the tactics. What do you do? Uh, but I think fundamentally also, it's one thing about you know how do you approach the relationship between parties, but I think fundamentally dealing with those issues is not... Um, I mean, it shouldn't be toxic. You know, um, we were talking about the UK a little bit where net migration has increased by six, I think, in the last decade. Um, I don't think it is illegitimate for a government to say there is a steady concern by the electorate to deal with this issue. We need to be doing it. And in the Netherlands, I was, I was looking at some, some stats from an article in Les Echo. Um, 400,000 emigrated to the Netherlands in 2022, which is 50% more than in 2019 before COVID. Um, and you have a huge issues with housing, for example, um, in, in, in the Netherlands. And obviously, the last few months, we've had many examples of like 
kind of gangs, Moroccan gangs who who deal a lot of um, the drug business in the Netherlands and how that has created a lot of resentment and a lot of tension in some neighborhoods in, in the Netherlands. So I think fundamentally, uh, understand the kind of tactical conversation going on here. But when there is a pretty fundamental issue, which the electorate kind of consistently says, you know, you guys need to deal with it. It seems only logical that at some point, if the centrist parties don't deal with it, then people will turn to less savoury options. So, yeah, just my thoughts. On your your point about the center right strategy, the 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 dominating uh, the dominating uh, perception of this, uh, I think, on on from the center on to the left, everything to uh, to the left of the center is that there has been, uh, and Caroline decries this. There has been a, a rapprochement towards national populism, or at least a willingness to a co- to make coalitions with parties of the the populist right. And she cited Spain as an as an as a counterexample of that, and that has a sliver of truth to it. But um, but um, but what happened in Spain was in fact that uh, neither of the two right wing parties uh, openly um, uh, acknowledged that they would go into a coalition with one another. But it was pretty pretty much clear that they w- would have had they earned the votes that there was going to be a right wing uh, coalition government as there had been in Italy, Sweden, uh, Italy, Finland, Sweden, uh, Czech Republic, etc. Um, that Spain was not going to be the exception. What happened was that they fell short <laughs> of yeah. the absolute majority required. So there, there, so the question is kind of the point is moot. Um, um, but yes, I look. I read Hans Kunani's book Euro Whiteness, and towards yep. the end of the book, he devotes a whole chapter to denouncing the way that allegedly center right parties in Europe are now adopting some of the tropes from the national populist right. Right, yep. that they are now speaking about civilization, or they're now speak, or they're now getting tougher on migration. There's obviously yep. the case of Greece, where an EPP aligned uh, prime minister is, has been very tough on illegal arrivals to uh, to um, uh, to Greece. Um, uh, obviously, Orban was was part of was a Christian Democrat or is still still a Christian Democrat was part of the EPP for up until 2019. So the writers like Caroline see this grow see this uh, see the shift, which they think is, is concerning uh, towards uh, towards more alliances between the center right and the, and the far right. Um, now, what I thought was really interesting about the episode too was that for the reasons that, that Caroline mentioned, primarily having to do with secularization, right? The fact that the, the Netherlands is the most secular society of any EU member state, even more than the Nordics. And the Nordics are pretty high up there too. Yeah. But um, but the Netherlands, you know, like church attendance in the Netherlands is like, I, I don't know, like must be below 5% or something. I think it's 15% of um, religious uh, affiliation with, a, with uh, Christian churches. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those that fifty percent of the population practices the faith. So, uh, so it's an incredibly secular society, and for that reason, the flavor of national populism that has arisen not just in the form of PVV and Gerd Wilders, but also JA twenty six, Thierry Baudet, all of these national conservative parties that have sprouted out sprouted up in in the Netherlands to the right of BVD, to the right of Mark Rutte, they're all uh, they're all sort of uh, pagan. Uh, enlightened, uh, you know, they're not, uh, this is sort of the distinction I tried to make is that if you go to Central Europe, the national populists are much mm-hmm. more, um, are much more, um, are much more, uh, you know, they, 
the yeah, the wax the wax uh, lyrical nostalgic about Judeo Christian civilization about a time in the past when Christianity ruled Christendom ruled uh, Europe um, and uh, the answer that they uh, that they propose in opposition to radical Islam is Catholicism or or Protestant Christianity as a way to, to take over the public square and root out. Uh, radical Islam. Not that radical Islam is a threat in, in Central Europe. It is in Southern Europe. And in so Southern Europe, you also have this sort of national Catholic, nationalist Catholic flavor of, of right-wing politics. Hmm. This is not the case in the, in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, you have the answer that is being proposed to the rise of radical Islam is a more radical version of, of enlightened values, right? Hmm. Of laicite, of secularism, of protecting sexual minorities, protecting, uh, you know, protecting uh, the Jewish community, not because they're Jewish, but but because they're they can be used conveniently as as a as a token minority against I Islam, right? Um, so these are two ra radically different flavors of of national populism. And there's a long tradition of that. Um, what's his name? The guy who wrote this um, did this documentary in the early two thousands. Pim Pim Fortune. Um, yeah, he was killed. Yeah, he was killed by an uh, Islamist, I believe. And already yeah. you have this kind of rhetoric. He wasn't, you know, fighting the name of conservative values. My understanding is, you know, he was the kind of prototype of what we see with, with Wilders nowadays. Um, he was fighting the name of kind of uh, liberal values, you know, uh, women's rights, uh, uh, protection of minorities and, and so on. So it's very interesting to see exactly that. And uh, I mean, no, I don't think this will come as much of a surprise, but if you kind of are familiar with many far right parties in Europe, you actually will be surprised by, you know, there's a lot of gay people in those parties, which you know, on paper yeah. might seem surprising given the history of the far right with homosexuality. But, uh, you know, I think in France, for example, it's very well known, Ben Rassemblement National, uh, you've got kind of many top leaders are uh, are gay. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think there's um, there's an interesting politics of that. But I think this made me think there's so many episodes we need to be doing. One is, I think, about the centre-right and how, he, how it's managed or failed to, to, to deal with the rise of a, a far-right. Second is maybe kind of a more similar episode about, you know, what is the best tactic to contain the rise of populist parties? Uh, what are some of the kind of interesting solutions? And, um, and three, we need to find more episodes with, uh, with both of them. Well, great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Jorge. Um, if you want to listen to the full episode, you can join us on our Patreon for as little as five euros a month where you'll get the full episodes available and all of our previous episodes available in full um otherwise if you like the show please do consider supporting us just before christmas and give us a bit of a, a virtual christmas present on the on our virtual christmas tree we'll be very happy you can rate us on spotify nowadays you can rate us on apple podcast you can share the podcast on twitter to your friends whatever does it uh, we'd love to hear from you and get your support Thank you so much, Jorge, and see you all soon. Happy Christmas and thank happy you. New Year.